chapter 10. Let's keep rolling. So we have this, this situation of who's really a believer? And how do you know? And what does it require? We know that the gospel is that God is holy and people are sinful and we've sinned against this holy God and that's a problem and God has provided Jesus. And when we say that God has provided Jesus, then there's a lot there that Jesus is God and that he's eternal and yet he came to be a man, took on flesh, he lived and then he died on the cross What caused him to die? God put the sins of the world on him. When God saw our sins on him, then God's right and good and holy wrath killed Jesus. Jesus died, was forsaken by the Father, buried in the tomb, and on the third day he rose again and then ascended. All of that is what we mean when we say Jesus, and plus even more. And then the fourth point of the gospel is that somebody must respond to that. They must believe. They must repent of their sins and trust in who Jesus is and in what Jesus has done. And it takes, it takes that in order for somebody to be saved. So when my children are asking me quite regularly, is this person a Christian or is that person a Christian, that's not an easy answer, right? Not to mention that you've got to get into the whole idea of, Well, do they just know it in their head, or do they have it in their heart? Are they really a believer? The reason why it's important to think through this, though, and the reason why I would even ask, does somebody have to believe in it, is because heaven, folks, is a holy place. I want to remind you all of that. Sometimes we get to thinking that because sinful people like us are going to heaven, that there must be some elements of heaven that are a little bit less than holy. There aren't. Let me remind you all of that. There are not some aspects and elements of heaven that are less than holy. Can I remind you that this morning? Can you you be reminded this morning that, that heaven is awesome and glorious and holy in all of its ways? God is there. There's no need of sun because God will be the light, right? God is the the focus, the main event, the priority. God is the thing in heaven and it's completely holy. And no sin is getting there. So instead of bringing God and heaven with it down a few notches in order to make it where we're there, we need to be reminded that heaven is actually holy And what happens in salvation is God makes us fit for heaven. God doesn't change. God doesn't become less. God doesn't become worse. I hope you get that. In order for us to be in heaven forever with him, God changes us. God makes us holy, us spotless, us clean, us pure. God makes us righteous. God makes us completely right through and through. Well, some of you say, well, I'm never going to get there. I mean, I'm trying, and yeah, I see some evidence of grace in my life, but I'm still a sinner. And that's excellent that you say that, because it's never going to be fully in you. The Bible teaches us that we get Jesus' righteousness as ours. But how do we get it? So look at Romans chapter 10. We'll start at verse 5. For Moses 
writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, I think you know what this means, right? We have the Old Testament. We have the Ten Commandments there, God given to Moses. And that basically says, if you obey that, then you will be righteous. But there is nobody that completely obeys. Nobody. There's not a human being that is righteous because of their obedience to the law of God. Can I remind you that? And when we say that we're trying or when we say that I've really done a good job or something like that, we're still way off. You remember just last Sunday with the rich young ruler, right? And Jesus posed that very question to him, well, you know the commandments? And he even said off many of them, and he said that I have kept all of those. You remember that? But I reminded you that Jesus didn't mention any of the first four commandments that have to do with your relationship with God. I don't know if y'all listened to that sermon or not. There is nobody who, com- who obeys, completely obeys the law of God and therefore is righteous. Nobody. That's what he's talking about in verse 5. So there needs to be another way to become righteous. There needs to be another way in order for you to be righteous and therefore fit for heaven. Verse 6 says, but the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now look at verse 9. Perhaps a verse very familiar to you because you've memorized it through preschool or Sunday school or something like that. Or, or familiar to you because you've memorized what we call the Romans road and just a, a selection of verses. But now we're looking at it here in the context of Romans and Romans chapter 10. Because there is a righteousness is available because if, and that's a big if, right? If you confess with your mouth, That Jesus is Lord. Okay, you can be righteous if you are a professing, confessing believer that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord of all, Lord of your life, Lord of your home, Lord of your marriage, Lord of your work ethic, Lord of everything. If you are a believer that Christ reigns over that, you can be saved. But he doesn't stop there. One must believe Jesus to be their Lord who reigns over them in order for them to be saved. And that's a big if. Because as we all know, it's easy to say that Christ is our Lord without him actually being our Lord. And this belief here is a deep down, life-changing, in your heart, in your head, all of your soul, believing him to be Lord. But he says a little bit more. Look at verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Interesting that that's added in there, right? What must somebody do to be saved? Believe in Jesus. We know that. What must somebody do to to be saved? Have faith in Christ. We know that. But what about Jesus? And almost always we'll say that he died for my sins. And I want to remind you here today that we cannot disconnect in the work of Christ, the cross, 
from the resurrection. One person said beautifully just two days ago on Good Friday that Friday is good because Easter is true. Let me say that to you again. That Friday was good because Easter is true. If you somehow didn't think about today or didn't uh, prioritize today and Sunday and all that Sunday means in the resurrection wasn't that big of a deal to you but you were only focused on Friday and the cross and the, and the, and the, and the being crucified for us and even the, the death of Jesus but you weren't aware of the resurrection then there's no real way for you to see how that ultimately is good for you. This is why so often we have people asking, and my kids asked me this again this week, what's so good about Friday? Because somebody being nailed to a cross doesn't sound good. And people ask that question all the time. What's good about it? If you cannot get to explaining Sunday, then Friday's not all that good. So Paul here in the book of Romans says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because as soon as somebody starts prioritizing the resurrection, that he's alive, you have to bring up, well, that he died. He couldn't be risen if he wasn't dead. And so as soon as you start talking about the resurrection, you have to talk about his death. And as soon as you start talking about his death or trying to grasp his death, you have to then start talking about why he died. Well, I thought you said he was God. I thought you said that he's altogether good. I thought you said that he had never sinned. How did he die? As soon as you start talking about his death, you have to start talking about our death. And as soon as you start talking about our death, you have to start talking about our sins. And as soon as you start talking about our sins, you have to start talking about me, and you have to start talking about you. Who are you and who am I? We are people who've done wrong. We've all disobeyed God. And in our disobeying of God, the wages of sin is death, and we're all going to die. did a funeral on Friday for a man who was 90 years old, and his family had talked about how he had lived so long and had a good long life. and He had outlived many of his peers. He was the oldest of four, uh, four boys. He had three brothers. He had outlived all of them. Ninety years old. Wow, what a good long life, they said. But even it ended. Because death will surely get us all. And if we sin, we die. And we're all going to die. And if I'm going to die, then I want to understand it. I want to make sense of it. And this shallow, shallow advice that says, make the most of it, you've only got one life, really falls flat for the people who aren't able to make the most of it. And it really falls flat if we're not able to put any meaning past that life. So we sin and we die. And therefore, we need help to get past this life. And therefore, Jesus comes in. And Jesus came and experienced life in the same way that we do. 
Jesus knows what it's like to be like us. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way, but then he also did not, or then he also died, but without sinning. So now we worked backwards through it, let's work forward through it. If he died, how did he die? What caused him to die? If the reason why we die is our sin, and you're telling me he didn't sin, how did he die? Because, as Friday teaches us, Jesus gave up his life, went to the cross. He was determined to get to the cross. He was resolved. He had a resolution to get to the cross. And yet, while on the cross, in full obedience, doing what his father had planned from the beginning of time, Jesus went to the cross. And while on the cross, God takes our sins, my sins, your sins, and puts them on Jesus. And when God sees the sins on Jesus, he killed Jesus. Jesus died. So Jesus died. He shouldn't have died, but he died for us. And in dying for us, the work of saving us is now happening. They took him down off the cross, and they buried him, and they sealed up the tomb. On Saturday, nothing at all happened. But then that Sunday morning, as we read outside and our call to worship from Luke 24. It was early that day, and that group of women, right? That group of women. It says, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the other Mary, and other women were headed to the tomb. They had spices prepared. And when they showed up, the stone had been rolled away. They were amazed. They marveled, it said. They took off running. They found disciples. The disciples took off running. The next thing you know, right there outside of Jerusalem, it's like a scattering fury of people going all over the place in a glorious, awesome way, running to check things out. The ladies were running to tell people. The people, the apostles were running to get there to see it. Then they were running to tell people. It was fascinating. Why? Because sinners that know their sins, the sinners that know that they deserve to die, who've met a man who's living life and explaining life like they'd never seen before, they saw die. It brought great puzzling to their, uh, to, their, to their lives and to their minds and to their understanding, and yet now he's alive. And all of a sudden, like this and like this and like this and like this, all that Jesus had told them started to click. And they started thinking, yeah, he told us he would. He told us he would. Isn't it fascinating that while he was dying on Friday and while he was dead on Saturday, the Bible doesn't tell us that they said, wait, he told us he's going to rise again. They didn't say that. It didn't click with them that, wait, he he told us that he was going to rise again until after he had risen. Yet we see a risen Jesus. And Paul here in Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Does somebody have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Absolutely they do. Absolutely they do. They have to believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. They have to know about sin. They have to know that sin costs us our lives. And then they have to know that Jesus gave up his life 
for our sins and that it didn't stop there, that God raised him from the dead to show that he is victorious. In the passage that Jake read outside from Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching the very first sermon in the book of Acts, the very first sermon after the filling of the Holy Spirit, right after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and he tells them in verses 22 and 23, you guys killed Jesus. But then in verse 24, the last verse that Jake read, he says, But God raised him up because it was not possible for death to hold him down. One must understand that. One must understand that in the sense that that has become what their hope is, what their heart is, what their longing is, is that their soul needs that and that God provides that. God gives life to my dead soul. God gives life and freedom to my sinful soul. And I know it because I see it in the resurrection of Jesus. What has happened in the life of Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection, is what has happened in my life. And I believe that. And so Christ is my Lord. Yes, one must believe in the resurrection. But when the kids ask, is this person a Christian? Is that person a Christian? There's no way to know that, actually. We'd have to get into a conversation. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. As Christians, we don't want to be these people who uh, make Christianity difficult or seem like we are uh, hard-nosed or hard-edged about what it really takes to be a Christian. We don't want to make it complicated. The answer truly is to believe in Jesus. If somebody has faith in Christ, then yes, they can be saved. But we do have to qualify what is it about Jesus. It's who he is and it's what he's done. At Acts chapter 17, we have Paul in one of the best passages in the Bible, in the, in the book of Acts, and in the life of Paul. We have Paul now in a, in a Gentile area, and, and Paul centers on the resurrection. I want you to see this passage as, as kind of a framework and kind of an outline for Paul and, and what he was like. Read with me at Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. Notice, it's Easter Sunday morning. And we're asking, does somebody have to believe in the resurrection? So look what Paul does here. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Does everybody see that? Does everybody see there at verse 18 what Paul was preaching? It doesn't tell, it could have just said that he was preaching Jesus. And you, would have, you and I would have had to kind of ask and try to discern, what was he preaching about Jesus? What, what was he saying about Jesus? But here, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, Luke lets us know that the very subject Paul was bringing up, there was the resurrection of Jesus. We must deal with the fact that one who shouldn't have died, died. And once he died, he came back to life. We must deal with that. But that's what he's preaching. Jesus 
and the resurrection. Verse 19, let's keep reading. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know that what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has give, look at this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead stop right there for just a second paul goes okay from preaching in the synagogue to reasoning in the marketplace, Paul goes to talking to them about their philosophers. These ideas of introducing new things, they're, they're intrigued. They said, we'd like to hear a little bit more about this in verse 19 and 20. Paul then gets a little bit more opportunity. It says he stands up in verse 22, and he starts to explain life. And he says, I can tell y'all are religious, you're here doing things, you're not really sure what you're worshiping, you've got an altar to the unknown God. But I can tell that you guys are religious, and I can tell that you understand life a little bit. Let me tell you. And then he goes in that God made them. And then he goes in that not only did God make y'all, God made everybody, and we're all trying to find our way toward God. Matter of fact, we're all trying to live under God, trying to figure it all out. But then he starts to narrow it in. And he starts talking about how we're accountable to God. And we've sinned against God. And God's not going to overlook that anymore. God's going to deal with that. And he has dealt with that. But not by dealing with you, but by dealing with his son on behalf of you. And then he narrows it in even a little bit more. And he brings it to the resurrection. He says God has made a judge of the world. And the judge will judge in righteousness. And you can be assured of that. Because God has raised him from the dead. In that big, awesome sermon in Acts chapter 17, this explanation that we have of Paul and what he's like and how he interacts with people and how he's a preacher and leading people to Jesus, you have him climaxing it. Listen, you have him coming to the very critical part of his interacting with them by saying, of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
We must deal with the resurrection. You must deal with the resurrection. You must ask yourself, do I believe that Jesus is alive? You must ask yourself, if I do, then why did he die? Now, if you don't, then that's where you're at. You can't be saved. You won't be saved. Heaven doesn't await you. The judge and his righteousness will have to judge you because you've rejected that he's alive. But if you do believe that he's alive, then you have to ask, well, why did he die? And as I walked backwards already, you have to get back to your sinfulness and go to God seeking the forgiveness of sins, believing that the risen Lord Jesus is your Savior. But to make it even that much better, look at the next verse. Luke shifts a little bit, but I want you to see this. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead... Some mocked. Folks, is that a reality? Do some people mock the resurrection of the dead? Did somebody laugh at you for coming this morning? In the rain, in the storm, that early, did some people laugh at you? Did you ask somebody to come with you and they said, no thanks, I'd rather sleep in? Are you here now kind of mocking, like, I wish I had not come. I wish I could have slept in. I'd rather not be here. Do you have a bad attitude toward the resurrection? It's always been the case that either you don't believe it or it's just not that big of a deal to you. And Paul makes it very clear, Luke makes it very clear here, that when some heard of the resurrection of the dead, they mocked. But keep reading. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So they were at least interested. Well, this is fascinating. We have a man here who believes in the resurrection. We want to hear more, but keep reading verse 33. So Paul left. He went out from their midst, but look at verse 34. But some men joined him and believed. Does everybody see that? I think it's awesome how Acts chapter 17 is a picture of Paul in his ministry and the way he dealt with people, ungodly people, even, even Gentile people that didn't know that much. I think it's fascinating that this passage that is very familiar, when you talk to, uh, to pastors and church people, people are very familiar with Acts chapter 17. Paul in Athens and Paul in the Areopagus. People talk about this passage all the time, but what is the the, the, the central point that Paul is dealing with as he interacts with them. The resurrection. The resurrection. I want to ask you, and this will step on my toes and probably yours as well. I'm sure you've had some spiritual conversations lately. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You've invited somebody to church or you've asked them if they've been reading the Bible. Perhaps you've asked somebody if they pray or could you pray with them. But in all earnestness, and all seriousness, when was the last time you had a conversation with somebody about the resurrection? Yes, people will mock. They mocked him. But yes, people will believe because God saves people through hearing about the resurrection. In Acts chapter 17, if you're focused on the resurrection like we are this Easter Sunday morning, it's throughout the whole thing. Verse 18 tells us that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And then the rest of the chapter is him explaining the resurrection. Of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection, and then some believed. Church, we are followers of Jesus. He is our Lord, and we've gathered here this morning to worship him. But let's be reminded like we are every Easter Sunday morning that our Lord is alive. That death has been overcome. Death could not keep him down. God raised him up. He lives. He lives. And if that's true, because of our sins and what God has done through him for our sins, then may we truly be all about the resurrection. And may it not take just Easter, one Sunday a year, for us to refocus ourselves on it or recalibrate ourselves toward it. May we be people who understand the resurrection. Now, I don't know for certain, but I'm pretty sure in Acts chapter 17, Paul in Athens, it wasn't Easter Sunday. It was Christ as Lord. And if Christ is Lord, then the resurrection is what we're all about. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's be a saved people because we believe in a resurrection. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that in one little verse in the book of Romans, we have the Bible, including the necessity of the resurrection. That Jesus is alive, that the tomb is empty, that death has been dealt with. Father, thank you that the devil's been defeated. Thank you that sin has been overcome. Father, we worship you. But Father, may we be strong in in, in being committed to the fact that one must believe in Jesus for who he is and what he's done. We thank you, God, that Christ has risen, and we worship you here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.